Access for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcasting Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we normally take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, but today we're going to be going back a little bit further. We're going to be taking a look at some adventures of the Uncanny X-Men that took place before Giant Size X-Men number one, as well as a few that might have missed our read-through the first time around. With me as always to cover the Uncanny X-Men is our resident Nightcrawler superfan Jonah. Hello, everyone. Hey Jonah, it's super great to have you here, especially because uh, you're a pretty big Spider-Man fan. And you're a pretty big Nightcrawler fan, and I know we'll be covering a pretty cool team-up, ironically not in Marvel team-up, between those two characters this week. Yeah, uh, it was a shock to find that they had uh, two issues together, and it actually made me really excited to have two of my favorite characters come together for fighting some bad guys. Yeah, and it, it, it's really interesting, because you know when you think Nightcrawler, he is somebody who has a, you know, a lot of... Um, fighting style similarities to Spider-Man, so it was really great to see them team up. But that's not all we have this episode. Along for the ride with us, we have Team Champions Kyle. Hey, guys. Hey, Kyle. It was so great covering Amazing Adventures with you last time, and uh, the adventures of the Beast and his transformation, and there's kind of a tie-in to that this episode. So between having Jonah on to help out last time and the Beast tie in this episode, there was no question but to have you on. So welcome back, buddy. I'm sorry you don't get to read Uncanny X-Men yet, but... The day is coming where you get to read something good. Soon. 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 Absolutely. So, before we get too far into it, I just want to talk a little bit about something that kind of came to my attention while we were reading these. Uh, the issues we'll be covering today span a number of years. We'll be covering Marvel Team-Up number 4, 23, 38... Um, we'll be covering Amazing Spider-Man 161, 162, as well as going back to Marvel Team-Up for its annual, and then issues 53 to 55. I bring that up because that does mean we'll be covering three years' worth of stories, and I think the one thing I noticed was, other than minor details surrounding Peter, it actually felt a lot like nothing ever changed. That kind of got me thinking about the uncanny relaunch that's going on right now. One of the things about creating comics is I had to take a huge step back from uh, sitting back and reading them. I only have so much time to devote to comics, and uh, when you're trying to create something, it takes a good portion of your energy and your time. So creating Kid Riot meant having to read a few less comics each month, and before you knew it, my pull list was a stack that I couldn't control. I walked away from... uh, big two comics, sticking with mostly my indie buddies' books, keeping up so that when I see them, I could talk to them about it. And uh, this Uncanny X-Men relaunch pulled me right in. The cast sounded great, but the more I think about it, the cast sounded great because it sounded like what I grew up on. It kind of sounded like it sounds great because we're going back to status quo. I feel that something that comics today get attacked for is living in the status quo, living for the era of the film and being able to further sustain the identity of the character and the cultural zeitgeist by promoting the idea that is set in the film, which is the main idea of the character that most people are able to resonate with and and connect with. For many people, it was their first introduction to Iron Man or Thor to see them in theaters. So 
that just kind of got me thinking, guys, when, when Marvel says we're, we're relaunching or DC says we're relaunching this title and that era is over and this era is going to begin and it's, it's the age of heroes or it's the age of, of villains or it's the, it's the shattered dreams or it's the new 52. How do you guys feel about that? You know, because clearly this is something that's been going on for so long that we're saying that there's very little change in Spider-Man's status quo over three years, four years. Jonah, how does it feel for you as somebody coming into comics at this point, knowing there's 50, 60 years of canon every time they do a reboot? Um, I think it's pretty interesting. I, re- I think I have a dual stance where I'm on the fence, where I play both sides of the argument for it, why it's good and why it's bad. Uh, I think it can be good because sometimes you just need a fresh start and to reboot and to get your bearings of, okay, this didn't work the first time. Why didn't it, wor- why didn't it work the first time? And you can redo it and you can make... Uh, a much better art uh, that can come out of this. But also, when you're constantly rebooting and you're rebooting and you're rebooting, that kind of can tell a fan, I don't really know what I'm going to do with this. I don't know where we're, we're going to take this, but you're going to still buy it anyway, probably. And it's that's not... I don't think it's the best method of doing it. You shouldn't really be constantly keep rebooting it because you're looking at old ideas and you can't execute them well. I don't think that's right. So... If what I hear what you're saying is you're okay with reboots so long as the creative teams or the editorial team use it as an opportunity to learn from past mistakes, but too frequently it feels to you like reboots are a sloppy and easy street way to get out of storytelling dead ends and often involve throwing things at the wall, hoping something will help revitalize a character that the editorial staff are kind of, you know, or the creative staff are kind of at fault for the, the decline in the character. Yes, absolutely. You know, I really agree. That that sums up a lot of my feelings, too. Kyle, how about you? As somebody who's been buying comics the last few years and has uh, done a wealth of, of digging and going back and experiencing comics, uh, starting with the Stan Lee run and the Chris Claremont era, how is it for you as somebody who also lives in that duality of, of retro comics and modern comics? For me, it was honestly kind of overwhelming up to the point where uh up to the time when i started collecting i didn't know where i should be starting and i didn't feel comfortable just pulling a uh a book off the shelf and just starting in the middle of a story so having a reboot happen right as i was getting interested uh was actually kind of nice but looking back now it it kind of makes it overwhelming because now I have to go back and try to figure out where each reboot fits into into the timeline. Something that I noticed with the uh, the relaunch of Uncanny was that they're actually dual numbering the the books, so you'll have the the uh, numbers going all the way back from the start. Plus, you'll have the number of the the current reboot, which was nice. It was something that Marvel tried before as well. I have a very clear memory. Um, <clears throat> they actually just did an omnibus for it. They're calling it the Joe Quesada Marvel Knights omnibus, but don't be fooled. It's essentially just a way that they could finally collect both Kevin Smith and David Max Daredevil runs in a singular omnibus edition um, and properly pad it so it's long enough as most of the 
uh, Daredevil run f- had from that era had been collected already between the two Bendis Omnibi, the two Brubaker Omnibi, and then the, uh, I believe, the Shadowland Omnibus does include the rest of the Andy Diggle run, but it, it could be misspeaking. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do appreciate what you're saying, because when I think about that era, the, that specific era of Daredevil, I can imagine on those really gorgeous Alex Maleev covers that there were two sets of numbers for Daredevil. So I know it's something they've done before, and I, I feel like they did it for Thunderbolts too, right around the time that Thunderbolts renumbered to new Thunderbolts, uh, when Fabian Nicieza was on it, or just when he was leaving. And they might have done Thunderbolts versus Avengers around that time, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it does give a sense of where it should go in an overall picture. But I did like that you said something about you try to figure out where all of the reboots go. In trying to catch up uh, for this big event that's been going on where they're you know relaunching Uncanny, I'm actually kind of confused because I keep finding things that I need to have read or should have read or would like to have read, such as The Return of Wolverine, is actually part of the last company-wide rebranding relaunch, which... Barely ended before this one. The last one was Marvel Legacy, and now this one is Fresh Starts. And I believe they were both essentially to bring the characters back to the status quo again. So, you know, at the end of the day, do they hurt or do they help? I think they bring new people in, but ultimately I do think constantly rebooting and constantly devolving back to the status quo in the end does over time, weaken the efficacy of your brand by introducing the idea that um, any era really is just temporary, and I don't think we need any further reinforcement of that than the bold and daringness of the Grant Morrison era feeding directly into the very slow-motion event that was Astonishing X-Men, taking things back to a much safer Chris Claremont place. Um, Yeah, I think... All that said, I mean, I don't think we, there's even more to say before going into this stuff. I think that covers a humongous chunk of the setup that would benefit our readers uh, with this episode. So let's talk a little bit about what we'll be covering today. As we mentioned, we'll be covering some Marvel team-up as well as some Amazing Spider-Man. We'll be covering Marvel team-up number four, which is Spider-Man and the X-Men minus the Beast. We'll be covering Marvel team-up number 23, which is actually Iceman... And the Human Torch. Now, the Human Torch co-stars in this issue because, occasionally, they would publish Giant Size Spider-Man. When they would publish Giant Size Spider-Man, Spider-Man would miss Marvel Team-Up and would be, most often, replaced with the Human Torch. The Human Torch was kind of the Deadpool of the 60s and 70s. He wasn't wasn't quite Spider-Man, but he was cool, he was hot, he was fun, guys wanted to be him, he was entertaining, uh, and they give us a real average story there. Uh, Marvel team-up number 38 sees the return of the Beast to our wonderful pages. We'll take a tour over to Amazing Spider-Man 161 and 162, in which Spider-Man and Kurt Wagner uh, get to know each other a little bit better. Mein Gott! And uh, we'll be taking one final stroll back to Marvel team-up to cover the annual, which co-stars the X-Men, before turning our attention to... uh, you know, I'm going to save the surprise of 53 to 55 for when we get there. But when I tell you guys, it starts with the Hulk fighting a dude named the Wood God, Banshee actually having lines, 
and ends in essentially the creation of the Infinity Gauntlet, I'm not fucking with you. So, seriously, strap in. We're going to be taking a look at some uh, pretty strange adventures. Now, we couldn't talk about these adventures without taking a moment to acknowledge the creative teams responsible. It would be a tremendous mistake not to do so, uh, especially having just lost Stanley. I think it's really important that we make sure that we credit everybody responsible with working on these books. Um, Marvel team up number four is by Jerry Conway with pencils by Gil Kane. I believe that is our first story for both of them in our series. We're then going to be taking a look at Marvel team up number 23, um, where we'll be looking at the Iceman Human Torch story. It's a script by Len Wein. Ah, our good buddy Len Wein we never really care for. Um, with pencils by Gil Kane. Uh, it says m- inks by Mike Esposito. I'm going to mention Mike Esposito now, because Mike Esposito's name is going to come up quite frequently as somebody who does finishes. Finishes is a, a little bit more detailed than just doing inks. It's a little bit more work, and... That does ultimately change the look of the book. You can see a great sense of how that change goes if you read, once again, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. If you take a look, you can notice the point at which Frank Miller goes to uh, detailed pencil um, kind of little card layouts for uh, Janssen to work off of. And it's it's a really interesting way it subtly changes the art when a person changes their job description. And it would just be a mistake not to mention a guy like Mike Esposito, who will come up a number of times, but because he isn't the penciler, frequently gets left out of the creative credits. Oftentimes, only the writer and penciler will be credited, though it is important to make sure we give the anchor as much credit as possible as well. We're then going to be taking a look over at Marvel Team-Up number 38, where Spider-Man and the Beast battle our good buddy... The Griffin. That's going to be a script by Bill Mantlo, another name we're familiar with. And this is going to have breakdowns by Sal Buscema, as well as finished art by Mike Esposito. Once again, this is going to be a place where you'll be able to take a look and see a bit of a difference in an artistic style. And that's pretty exciting. Um, <clears throat> when we hop over to Amazing Spider-Man, we're going to be greeted by our good buddy, once again, Len Wein. <laughs> uh, he'll have Art Assist by Ross Andrew with Finishes by Mike Esposito. And that's going to be the same creative team for 162. When we hop back over to the annual, now this annual has some creative team. The annual's creative team is a story by Chris Claremont, Bill Mantlo, and someone named Bonnie Wilder. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I've come across anything else by them. So this is really interesting. Uh, And the art here is going to be, once again, by Sal Buscema. Before hopping back for issues 53 through 55 of Marvel Team-Up, which is going to be featuring a a kind of soon-to-be-very-famous face for us. The book has a script by Bill Mantlo. And amazingly enough, it has pencils by John Byrne. John Byrne, who in our podcast series just started his incredible Uncanny X-Men run with Chris Claremont, goes down in history being considered the best run on X-Men ever. It lasts from 108 until 143 or so, and it's going to be a really exciting ride. Okay, house cleaning, out of the way, done. All right, guys, let's get to it. Jonah, as our resident X-Men expert. 
Get me going with Marvel team-up number four. How was it for you seeing an adventure of the original X-Men before they were uh, replaced and supplanted? Um, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that this issue is kind of bad. It, I feel like this issue suffers from a little too much going on again. Um, and it's just, it feels rushed. The plan of the X-Men, so basically what happens is one of Charles Xavier's friends is kidnapped by a vampire uh, who also fought Peter Parker at some point, who gave him some form of a disease that's causing him to have nightmares, and he's weakened, and it's a weird mishmash of like a lot of things going into one thing. Just to give a little bit of perspective on what Jonah's talking about, uh, those of you who might be familiar with the Spider-Man animated TV show from the 90s will be familiar with Morbius, the living vampire. Morbius, the living vampire, though uh, infecting Peter, made Peter angrier and and ragier and uh, kind of like a precursor to the symbiote. He was kind of like a... I guess he was a living vampire, the way Spider-Man would occasionally become Man-Spider. Morbius was kind of like Man-Bat, but not really. He's like Man-Bat makes a little bit of an interview with a vampire and um, a whole lot of like, it's Twilight time! Sorry, I just had to explain Morbius. He's, he's both sillier and less silly than I'm making him sound, if that's of any comfort to anybody. Kyle, had you been familiar with Morbius prior to this? No, I have absolutely no experience with Morbius before. This was... It was an experience. Now... I just want to clarify, now this has nothing to do with anything, but I don't know when the hell I'm going to get a chance to talk about this guy ever again otherwise. For everybody here that's hearing me say Morbius, 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 um, you may hear me accidentally call him Mobius at some point. Mobius was a comic book artist um, starting in the 70s, and he, uh, God damn it, if some of his work is in some of the best work I've ever seen in my entire life, do yourself a humongous favor and look up Mobius. I believe it is M-O-E-B-I-U-S. Uh, I could be spelling it wrong. Um very possible, I, you know, but he's phenomenal. He is incredible. Um, his work is incredible. So I just wanted to put that out there. If I can just sneak in some stuff that there really isn't a place for, I'm always happy to do it. Uh, so yeah. And you know, you made a comment, Jonah, that you felt that too much happens. I agree with you. Too much happens, but too much happens. That has nothing to do with the fucking X-Men. Like, the X-Men lift the fuck out of this. The X-Men could be any one or two random other characters. Yeah, it's... it's. I say that too much is happening, but nothing actually happens. It's, it's such a weird comic that they went with this plot that has so much shoved into it, but nothing of importance really does happen. I don't understand a lot that goes on, and there's a lot of bad things that happen. I do have a joke, though. Um, at one point... At one point, uh, the X-Men go to try to find Spider-Man. Instead of asking him things, they start to attack him. Uh, So at one point, Jean uses her powers to slowly lift him down, but he basically faints right after. So I would... (laughs) I said, Mr. Summers, I don't feel so well. No! Oh, no. (laughs) And then he actually... Well. And then he fainted. And then he fainted. Jeez, man, everyone's sad now. Uh, But hey, way to bring it full circle. We will be talking about uh, kind of the birth of the Infinity Gauntlet a little bit later on. Um, And those of you who have been checking out the other incredible shows from the Cage Club Network, 
Uh, you may be hearing me talk a little bit more about the Infinity Gauntlet very soon. Some very exciting stuff. As Kevo and I will be launching a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast here on the network. We're super jonesed for it. Uh, and you'll actually hear me and this guy Jonah talking a little bit more about the X-Men over on an episode of Three's a Charm, or Third Time's a Charm. Sorry, Mike! Where we're going to be talking about X3 at some point. So keep an ear out, keep an eye out. Movies, men, everywhere you look. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't really have too much on this issue. I do think it's important to note that at one point there is a crossover to Beast. Now, of course, that is why we have our resident Beast expert, Kyle, on. So, there's a moment, Kyle, where uh, they they psychically reach out to Beast, and they're like, Beast, will you come fight with us? And the Beast is like, oh, no, no, Professor, I'm uh, in the middle of uh, my own thing. And Gene is like, is he coming? And Xavier's kind of like, no, fuck him! And Gene is kind of like, yeah, fuck him! And they just kind of live their lives without him. Um, okay. My point is, he's in the middle of his transformation, right? That's the whole point. That's why he can't come join them. So why did they show him in his, like, human garb? I honestly don't understand that myself. It's... Maybe it's to show that he was still trying to, um... fit in at the the brand corporation? I, I even get that, but then I wonder why that story moment why that idea, it really surprises me. It's almost like, um, imagine for me, if you will, finding out that uh, the, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers are going to appear at your local mall, and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're even fine with it if it's a bunch of people in the costumes and you just don't get to see them with their masks off. But you get there, and it's five assorted teenagers in color-coded outfits, just like out of their costumes, and they're wearing kind of, like, really cool watches, and they're like, yeah, we're the Power Rangers, untransformed. You wouldn't be happy, right? So why are they trying to sell us some random-ass, mall, color-coordinated, untransformed ranger crap instead of giving us a beast appearance? I just don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> it's truly unfortunate. <laughs> Guys, I don't have any more on this, in this yeah. issue. <laughs> I, uh, there's, there but, was not much to talk about this. Well, there but, was that one moment when uh, Spider-Man forgets that consent is a thing. Yeah, you know, this is an unfortunate moment, and it it does warrant discussion because the moment in question... Jonah, um, I believe you had uh, initially mentioned the moment in question to me. Jonah, do you want to describe the moment? Um, yeah, so basically what happens is once the X-Men save the day uh, and they cure Spider-Man of his disease... Spider-Man says, uh, there's no real way for me to thank any of you, but I can thank Gene. So then he webs Scott and Warren and just plants a kiss on Gene without any notion. And then he jumps out of a window. So, all right. Now, this Me Too moment, and it actually kind of legit is, um, it actually brings up an interesting point. Unfortunately, this trope still exists in comics. Not to bring up Daredevil again, I have no idea how the fuck this is an episode of X is for Podcasts starring Spider-Man and Daredevil references, but for real, this is an episode starring Spider-Man and some Daredevil references. Daredevil had uh, a truly beautiful, incredible, groundbreaking run uh, just before the Charles Sewell run, 
with Mark Wade. Mark Wade and ultimately Chris Samney went on to do uh, two hardcovers worth. Uh, I think it's something like totally a total of 50 issues all said and done. Uh, it's really an incredible journey, and it's one of the best stories that you know Daredevil ever got. But the first issue comes out of Shadowland, and the idea is they needed to reset Daredevil to his swashbuckling fun self because he had just been possessed by a demon, and it was just so overwrought. And he breaks up a mob wedding and kisses the bride, and that gets put on the front page. And while I have no problem with Mark Wade choosing to use that time-lost trope, I do have an issue with him presenting it without any sort of um, rebuking of, of the behavior. There's nothing wrong with the fact that Daredevil broke up a mob wedding. I'm not like, no, he ruined that woman's day. Well, I mean, she's she, she's part of the mob. I'm not super concerned. But she, he never should have kissed her and, and violated her agency like that. And unfortunately, that is something that is is kind of a, a hero trope, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, sometimes they like to try to push this, that heroes can kind of get away with certain things that they really shouldn't. And this is an example of them. No matter how many times you save the world or save the day, you can't just kiss the girl. You have to get consent. Absolutely. And it's not even just no matter how many times you... See, you know, because that, that kind of becomes... I'm not getting into it, but there is a moment that in Ultimate X-Men in which basically Beast and Cyclops decide they can't save this woman getting mugged because they're, it, it's a test and they have to save only one person that day and it has to be a really good save. So they just let some people get hurt because it won't get them the points. That's terrible. Yeah, Marvel team up for, you know what? I give it a four out of ten. I wouldn't even be that generous. No, I would give it like a two. Ooh. I'd, I'd say maybe a three and a half. Sure. <laughs> very kind of that's very kind of me i guess because i give it the highest score huh. i'm so kind so let's talk about an issue i would certainly not give a 23 i would probably give this issue a 2.3 uh so sometimes classic comics got a little obsessed with with balance and symmetry to an extent that leaves me scratching my head and ass and um we are treated to a story in which the human torch and Iceman fight a bad guy named Equinox, who um, is both is like you know hot and cold. It's fire and ice. Um, if you haven't heard of this character, he doesn't go on to have too many more appearances. I think he appears in like Marvel Team Up number fifty nine, uh, maybe fifty seven. He appears just after what we're covering, which. I was just this side of tacking it on to the episode, you guys. I was just this side of, I think this, this is only other appearance. <laughs> so fuck it, you're all going to read it, I don't really care. Um, but <laughs> I decided, you know what? I don't want to read it, so no one has to. Uh, you know, Thank it's like you. when the teacher was like, I don't want to read that essay, so never mind. Hmm. Um, so, okay, Jonah... Uh, I think, unfortunately, this is one of the X-Men that uh, has eluded you other than that one time he was, you know, a mega dick. You know, for my first comic with Iceman, I actually kind of enjoyed his personality. And what transpires in this comic, I am kind of on Iceman's side because this is another comic that has hero versus hero. 
and we're just gonna have to keep a counter at this point for the it's we have we're gonna have three counters on this show the amount of times the x-men throw something into the moon into the sun yep uh the amount of times that storm gets naked for no reason and the amount of times a hero fights another hero due to miscommunication if I may, we're not even at the point in time where Storm just lightning strikes herself naked randomly yet. So oh, like, boy. Um, so I'm really happy to hear that you enjoyed his personality here. I'm going to be really honest. I felt he had an, like I felt he had no personality here. I thought he played a very default uh, vanilla good guy. But that that's my read, and it's really good to hear somebody say something that like kind of counteracts what I had to say. What else did you think about Iceman in that regard? And then, like, how was it for you reading... Now, this is before he was, you know, yes. super dick. So... Um, this issue... I have a few... I have two big major issues with this issue. The first issue is... The first uh, problem I have with this is that Johnny Storm's conclusion as to why Iceman is the initial villain is that because Iceman has ice powers. Because no one else in the entire universe can have any form of ice power. Literally no one else. So it has to be Iceman. It, o- it can only be Iceman. And my second issue... My second issue is how this... Uh, how they defeat Equinox. They kind of defeat him by luck. They don't really formulate a plan. They just happen to attack him at the exact moment he was changing. And he loses. And I don't like that, that the reliance on happenstance and luck to an otherwise villain that they possibly really can't beat, I don't, I don't appreciate that. I think that's weak storytelling. I think it's a little bit of a cop-out. Oh, oh, holy shit. Yes, it is. It's like, I don't know if you noticed, but two bad guys in a row in Captain Britain were defeated when an old housekeeper unplugged an evil computer. (laughs) Two bad guys in a row Jonah trust me I'm with you pal I say to myself Nico I say self Nico Nico self if you can't if if you're writing Riot Squad and you're just struggling bro if you're like how do they defeat this guy somebody somewhere else should just unplug a computer and they win oh my god and that's what I'm going to start saying to myself, because clearly that's fine. I'm with you on the weak sauce cop-out storytelling. I think it's an unfortunate element of these comics. Oftentimes, the setup lasts a good 8 to 10 pages. The rising action takes us from page 9 or so through page 16. And then the payoff goes from page 17 to 18. Sometimes it's just on the final page with the case of the Amazing Adventures issue in which they defeated Quasimodo. Uh, Quasimodo, you know, is like, I'm a computer who has to kill myself. Yeah, Quasimodo is like, human pain, I have to die. And like the beast is like, damn, come to think of it, that fan was you. And it turns out the entire time the issue was Stan. So I feel like, I do feel like I get what you're saying. Now, Kyle, um, for you, this is technically the earliest Iceman appearance other than, you know, not, not to shortchange his inclusion in Marvel Team-Up number four, which we just spoke so glowingly of. Right. But his appearance in Marvel Team-Up number four, I would say he was probably the most ancillary X-Man. He was probably the least engaged in the story. Yeah, he was just there. 
he really was. I think it's even part of why they didn't bring along the Beast. There wouldn't have been anything for two of them to do. Right. There was just enough story for three guys to have too much testosterone over Gene. And that's that's always been the case. So mm-hmm. um, how is it for you, as our residence champion's champion, dialing in to this point in Iceman's timeline? So this point in his timeline, he's... He definitely feels more immature. Uh, he feels... He just seems kind of impetuous to me. Um, but, I, I mean, that's probably because he was constantly on the defense for half the book. Um, because nobody seems to believe that he's not attacking Human Torch. Um, yeah, it's it really it's it's just so frustrating because <laughs> you just keep thinking they've met before. Why do they have to keep fighting? That's actually I think the worst part. If you're going to do a hero versus hero, these two heroes know each other. In a lot of other uh, comics where they use that plot, they don't know each other, and it's kind of like, all right, well, I kind of get it, but you, you're kind of both doing the same thing. It's not not bet much better, but they both know who they are. They've both reside in New York it's no no it's it's very frustrating very uh I'm I'm bowing out on this one guys I have nothing left to up this team with yeah anybody have any parting shots at Iceman and Equinox and the Human Torch playing the world's worst game of HVAC repair (laughs) no I have nothing Well, then let's just keep our merry march along to Marvel Team-Up number 38, where once again, it seems like absolutely nothing has fucking changed. And um, the Beast and Spider-Man team up against everybody's favorite... um, I don't know. You know what? I'm starting to think that part of my issue with him is, like, he kind of... He's kind of got, like, a McDonald's color scheme. And at the same time, he kind of looks like a deranged chicken... And so, like, I get, like, like a real, like, he is, like, nuclear fallout McNuggets kind of vibe from him. I can see that. I was going to say, like, right? a mutant dandelion. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Dandelion. Or, like, Ooh, a sunflower. Like, you know, because it cause yeah, mean, looks like a flower. It really does. Yeah, I would have... I would have really loved it if, like, they had called him Dandelion and had been like, "Stop insulting my masculinity." That says more about you guys than it does about me. Wait, I need a, I need a villain called Dandelion. That's like an actual line, like made of pollen, and that's his power. Oh, and see, I wanted him to be like, like, like a lion, but like Oscar Wilde. Okay, he's like a dandelion. Oh, okay. So, no, I like that. Um, I like that more. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um. So okay, now that we've wow that I'm. I'm literally good talking about the entire issue. I'm not kidding. I really like what we talked about. Um, guys, that was great. Let's so, just move on to Amazing Spider-Man. So, no, before we move on. Oh, we just I thought I'd that. done it. I thought I'd escaped. Fine. No. We'll actually talk about the issue. <laughs> J- uh, fine. As a resident beast expert, Kyle... Talk to us us about the Griffin. (laughs) So I just wanted to note that in this issue, we see a slight change in Griffin's design. Um, He went from the last time that we saw him in Amazing Adventures to now he has grown a tail 
and he now is also has the ability to control birds. <laughs> I like it's actually like probably a really cool power and stuff, but like can you imagine? Like I can't imagine. I can't imagine a lot of things, but I especially can't imagine waking up one morning and being like Oh my god, what's happening? Oh my god, there's a tail! I've grown a tail! Oh, oh holy hell! And there's all these birds chirping, pigeons go away! All the pigeons are gone. That's interesting. Goes outside and he's like, Doves, bring me, bring me leather! And like, doves just start showing up with leather straps and he's like, this is ingenious. I'm so glad my first move was to have doves bring me leather. And um, I think I think growing a tail, but learning to control birds with your mind, that's a, that's got to be a pretty rough Tuesday you wake up. That's just, it's not a trade I'm ready to make. And, um, you know, I it almost makes me feel bad for the griffin. Yeah. So yeah. glad you came with me on that leather journey. Uh, <laughs> edited that out. So Jonah, yes. Uh, there's there's not much to say on this. They try slightly because they give the um, the Griffin a backstory a little bit, but it's not good. Nope. I will say this is another issue where someone is falling off a building or just falling again. Yeah, he's oh. falling from the middle of the sky. Yeah, uh, that's another that's another Marvel plot point. This time, not by suicide, but someone falling. Also, the person that uh, the Chimera kills by dropping him dies be- because of the fall. That's a little weird. No, I mean that's super Gwen Stacy about it. Like, I mean, you know, sometimes they just gotta die. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes bad guys gotta be bad guys. That's actually something that uh, I'm really glad we're not seeing quite yet. Something that I think has been an um. An emergent element of the changing face of the comic book industry is this notion of the death of the Boy Scout in favor of uh, this 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 new ideal of of good guy with a heart of gold vigilante. The the idea that Deadpool would sooner put a bullet in his own mouth than a bullet in a kid. And well, not like we, that would actually do anything. Right, but it it brings us to that kind of idea that um, bad guys used to be bad guys, but now bad guys always need to be able to be redeemed into good guys. Mm. I'm not exactly thinking we're going to open up X-Men and read Kid Sinister running around on the team, but I swear to God, if you give me X-Men and you let me have Kid Sinister Marvel, I will churn you out the gayest book you've ever read. I would do things with Kid Sinister y'all couldn't even imagine, and um, it would be beautiful. But, point of my story. Um, you know, villains now are constantly kept in a position where they can be turned into good guys at any moment. One of the more unusual ones that I actually think was done to phenomenal effect was the redemption of Kane Marco, the Juggernaut. The Juggernaut was a good guy for quite a while in the 2000s. Uh, the worst ever, <laughs> it's up there, run of X-Men by Chuck Austin. Uh, that is the arc that featured the revelation that Nightcrawler never became a priest, but rather 
was duped into thinking he became a priest by an ex-nun who was going to use him to become the Pope and then turn off his image transducer so she could convince the world that Catholics worshipped the devil and then she would activate the nanite technology and the communion wafers that Catholics had been eating for ten years and all the Catholics in the world would disintegrate. That is literally an arc that was in that run of X-Men. So I am not talking about this run sucking lightly. This is also the arc that saw um, Polaris lose her mind at her own wedding and built herself a Magneto wedding dress and Magneto helmet out of the silverware at her own wedding. So (laughs) we're talking about one hell of a run, you guys. Wow. This run was really notable for two things. Number one, the redemption of Cain Marco, and uh, probably more importantly, the creation of Sammy the Fish Boy. Now, I know I said Sammy the Fish Boy, but Sammy the Fish Boy is ultimately the most endearing X-Man ever next to Baby Brood. Baby Brood is, of course, the best X-Man to ever live, and we should all be grateful that we ever had any Baby Brew ever. Um, is there any relation but... to Baby Bash? Oh, God. No, no don't bring that oh in God. here. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Jonah, I don't know how you did it, but I just, I like you more now. Um, I thank you for bringing it up. I've wanted to give you the update, guys. Uh, it is important to note that we are still trying to raise funds for the, uh, for the victims of the Baby Bash. I also need to point out that uh, we are still also raising funds for the victims of the child crash, which um, is an unrelated charity, and we'll get to that another time. But again, guys, if you are trying to help us with the victims of the baby bash, please send your money, just coins, we prefer coins, piled loosely in an envelope, okay? And just send it to care of baby bash. Your post office will know what to do. Thank you. Um... Yeah, when we're talking about Sammy the Fish Boy, I I know I'm making a silly joke of his name being Sammy the Fish Boy, but uh, I believe his name is actually Samuel Pare, and he is is a treasure, and that that run is pretty horrific in a lot of ways. It gave us two cool things. It gave us an Exiles crossover, Exiles being one of the best books Marvel's has ever published, ever, and uh, it gave us that. So... With even the juggernaut being redeemed into a good guy for 10 years and me clearly saying I like it, you know, I'm not saying it was bad. I'm saying I legitimately liked it. There is this idea that just about anybody can be a good guy. You're going to open up, you know, Astonishing X-Men one month and it's going to start, you know, Apocalypse pulling together his team of X-Men he just couldn't live without. And it's going to be a weird book, but I'm so sorry. Yeah, you were saying um, in regard to villain culture requiring that bad guys not kill people anymore. Oh, uh, I think you really bring you bring up a really good point about it. And it's not just something that's happening in comics. It's in a lot of other media where I, people – I feel like now people are just too afraid to have a villain be bad. And it's – no – a villain is a villain. You do not need to give them a tragic backstory as to why they're doing this. You don't need to, you know, try to have some redeeming factor of being like, oh, well, you know, I kind of understand. No. If you have a villain, let them be evil and let them do bad shit and get the shit beat out of them. You know, if you know me at all, you know my favorite movie of all time is Alien. Um, I really passionately love the Alien franchise for a million reasons. I could probably just sit here and start crying talking about how much I love Ripley. Uh, but I bring this up because I one time tweeted that 
Aliens is actually just the story of two women trying to do right by their species <laughs> for their survival. And it's actually true, right? Um, but I never, ever want to see a movie where we get the original Alien Queen's backstory. And it's super tragic. I don't want to feel bad for her. I want her to chop people's heads off with her inside mouth, and I want to cheer for it. So, I, I really, yeah, it really is important to me that we occasionally remember that villains are supposed to be evil. Hmm. I think if no one has anything left to say on Marvel Team Up 38, I would be happy to talk about the two issues that I actually think were good. The one thing I want to say is I would have cut this thing down to one issue. But Amazing Spider-Man 161 and 162 was uh, a delightful change of pace. I think we have to default to the resident Nightcrawler buff, <laughs> our, our, our German-speaking buddy over here. Talk to me, Jonah. How was it for you? You got to have your favorite X-Man co-star with your favorite Marvel Universe guy. Um, it was... I, I, don't, I was expecting, you know, when you're reading older comics... Uh, I'm kind of developing a little bit of, all right, if it's a bad issue, it's a bad issue. You know, it's, there's not much that can be changed about it now. But from this reading list, I really, I kind of really enjoyed these issues. Not that there weren't problems within them, but it was enjoyable to see, as Nico pointed out earlier in the episode, these are two heroes that kind of have very similar fighting styles. And... Add another tick to that list. It's another hero versus hero, at least in the beginning of 161. But I don't. I'm not as mad at that because it makes sense. Kurt gives a little bit of a ba um, insight as to where this issue takes place, and this is before the new X Men are revealed. This happens sometime before Charles announces that there's a new X Men team. So the world does not know of the X Men. I can actually tell you where this goes. Oh, you can tell where it goes? Oh, please tell me where it goes. So where does this go? Between 95 and 96. Okay, so that, that gives me a little bit of a better uh, insight. But also, it still makes sense as to why Kurt does not want to reveal his identity as an X-Men, even though he's slightly familiar with Spider-Man, who uh, I'm ass assuming they haven't talked about him because he doesn't know that Spider-Man has worked with the X-Men before. But they fight because... Kurt thinks Spider-Man sniped one of his friends from when back in the days of his carnival. Um, and I, I, looking at the perspective of if I am Kurt or I am Spider-Man and I see either this blue devil teleporting at me or I see uh, Spider-Man and we're still not at the point where Spider-Man is a confirmed hero. He's still, the media still twists him as, is he a hero? Is he a villain? It makes sense as to why they would fight one another because they both think they're the person who shot uh, Kurt's friend. And I'm okay with that. If it makes sense to have heroes fight who've never met, it's okay. I think we've been talking about this issue for like three or four minutes now, and somehow we've managed not to mention the Punisher oh. is in this. The Punisher is in both parts. In fact, it does not make sense that it's a Spider-Man or Nightcrawler story. And it's sort of almost exclusively a Punisher story. It's fucking weird. Um, Kyle, do you have... Had you read any Punisher before this? No. So, you know, coming into this thinking it was going to be Amazing Spider-Man and Nightcrawler and then getting some Punisher and some Jigsaw, 
It was uh, something else for you, right? It was so something else. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I've never really been interested in Punisher. Um, and I, I'll be honest, seeing the three of them on the cover, it kind of had me a little intrigued, but I wasn't really sure where it was going to go. And it kind of went where I expected it. Actually, it became very uh, obvious. I would agree. Jonah, having said all that, you know, thinking that it was going to be an amazing Spider-Man Nightcrawler team up and then having it really be about the Punisher and a Punisher character, as well as some really weird, dark ass. What the fuck is wrong with J. Jonah Jameson? That domestic oh my terrorist stuff. Holy shit, he is the biggest bully. For certain, J. Jonah Jameson is not just obviously the menace, but, like, the guy should be behind bars. Yeah, uh, that was, like, a very minor... That was, like, a small part of this Amazing Spider-Man issue was J. Jonah Jameson formulating a plan to stop Spider-Man. Really... It's almost... I almost got confused because I thought this was another Marvel team-up, and I was like, why is this in this issue? Oh, this is technically a Spider-Man issue that's really about Punisher that some for some reason involves Nightcrawler having a very small J. Jonah Jameson subplot. Yeah, you know, it actually verges on on the level of insanity that overtakes the the final four Marvel team up we're going to talk about. This amazing Spider-Man story boils down to a really cool way to get two very visually iconic um strong characters who make sense together on a page in a story even if the story doesn't really directly involve them. Many people might not realize that the Punisher was introduced in Amazing Spider-Man 129 and was originally a Spider-Man supporting character before getting his own miniseries. That's enough Punisher for one episode that's about the X-Men. <laughs> Does anybody have anything else about this two-parter before we actually talk about you know the Chris Claremont era, the whole purpose behind this podcast? So, I had one funny thing that I uh, wanted to point out about this. So, we have the first issue starts off with Peter and Mary Jane on a roller coaster. And for a guy who goes swinging from a web between buildings in the middle of New York City, he's surprisingly scared of roller coasters. Huh. I'm with you. Uh... Jonah, did you have any parting notes about two characters you love oh so very much? Um, no. Uh, you know, as much as I did enjoy this issue, I really wish if it was going to be two issues of Kurt and Spider-Man, I wish they would actually just been buddies from the beginning and just fought some villain. I didn't, I don't think I needed to see Spider-Man meet Nightcrawler, especially because to harken back to something we said about the Iceman issue... If Human Torch and Iceman are going to behave as though they've never met anyway, why am I wasting my time seeing two characters meet? To ask you the same question, Kyle, how do you feel when they go out of their way to show us every choreographed moment as a reader and as somebody who has absorbed 40 years of storytelling at this point um, in this medium and in this franchise in particular? How do you feel when they kind of spoon-feed you every moment? I kind of feel like it wastes my time a little bit. It's just too much information. I I really feel that way as well. Have 
you know, I think we we both said that a lot about the champions, especially. Oh yeah. You know, every conversation they tell us is going to happen. I don't need to see happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, they. I I don't need the characters narrating what they're doing as they're doing it. No, I completely agree. It feels like the information we've discussed has run a little long, and rather than do a disservice and cut this episode down too far and lose any of the great material we've covered already, I would sooner pull a shocker and turn this into a three-parter and push these last four to one final episode down the line so that uh, we don't have to lose any of the great discussion we've had and any of the deep examination we've done on these characters because we sure haven't talked too much about the plot. <laughs> How do you boys feel about that? Okay. I think, uh, I think there's nothing more exciting. It's like the cross-time caper. You know, we're going to actually have to put on the cover. No, it's still really over. I feel like I've basically covered everything you can cover. I feel like we've talked about some X-Men. We've talked about some things that are in X-Men. I talked extensively about Daredevil. That's interesting. Just about everything we did today involved Spider-Man, with the exception of the one that involved the Human Torch, which, sure, turns out that was something Marvel used to do because the Human Torch used to be Deadpool but on fire. So, guys, thank you so much, as always, for coming out. Kyle, tell me, how did this episode, how, how did these stories leave you feeling? How you doing, pal? Um, they're better than the champions. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, Jonah, you tell me, pal, how was it uh, getting to investigate the everybody's favorite webhead? Uh, this just makes me fall more in love with Spider-Man. Uh, it makes me realize a lot of the, a lot of Spider-Man's dialogue is kind of just very witty commentary on his situation. Oh, actually, there is uh, there is a moment in uh, Amazing Spider-Man um, where when they're executing the plan to take down the villain, Spider-Man reflects on Punisher's um, motives, and I thought it was actually a really nice moment where he's looking at why Punisher is doing what he does. And then he starts to question a little bit why he's doing what he does and why he's a hero. And I actually, I, that's part of why I love Spider-Man is he has these moments of a little bit of reflection where he is he is a dit and he is goofy, but he is uh, a little he is a deep character, and I do appreciate that. So it just makes me like him more. Spider-Man is. Uh, studying contradictions because as much as Peter is lighthearted, Peter is weighed down by the heaviness of the world. One of the the key elements of Spider-Man is he is these bright, bold colors. He is he is this beacon of hope. Even when Spider-Man is web-slinging in in a dark city night through the rain, there's shine on him. He glows, and uh, Peter is this idea of hope. In, in hopelessness, he is this idea of a carefree, childlike joy in being a superhero. And he is constantly weighed against and pitted against um, very mortal, very real sadness. And I think what you're talking about is a singular moment that does encapsulate exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about how Peter is more than just wisecracking and that's really why we're talking about these comics at all 
it's not just Amazing Spider-Man 161 and 162 has this singular moment. We're talking about stories that do deal with life and death. I know I came to understand myself a lot better as a gay man and as, as a human being through these stories and with the help of Chris Claremont and all of these people who told these stories. And I think the moment you just highlighted is why comic books and why all literary representation matters because they do reveal subtle, soft humanity in in this backdrop of super fantastical. Well, then, Kyle, where can everybody find you? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Thank you so much, Kyle. And Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino. That's at Jonah Rubino on Twitter and at Jonah.Rubino on Instagram. Nico, where can everyone find you? Oh, Jonah, what a great question. Well, um, as always, I'm a little bit everywhere. You guys can find me here as usual, co-hosting now and again uh, with Chris. Yeah, check out a few. I think there's a couple of episodes in a row where we're each doing our own thing a little bit. But as always, we'll be bringing you Now That's What I Call Music, track by track, uh, taking a deep look at how pop music shaped our cultural landscape. You can find me here covering all sorts of comics with these guys, as well as with Kevo and other amazing guest hosts, uh, as well as an upcoming new podcast where Kevo and I will be covering the Marvel Cinematic Universe before moving on to other fantastic franchises. You can find me making music over at facebook.com slash actionduo, where you can check out my awesome music with my buddy Adam. And then you can head over and you can check out my amazing webcomic at kidriotcomics.com. And uh, I do too many things. And you can then look at me on Instagram and Twitter and Tumblr at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And uh, for the love of God, guys, let's play this one out. Everybody have a great night. We'll see you soon. See ya. Bye.